Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're in the middle of a series called 40. We've been traveling for 40 days through the life of Jesus, through the... um, who Jesus is, what he claimed to be, moving up to those 40 days leading to Easter. I'm uh, especially thankful for Chris Phillips last week for um, coming and sharing with us and hope you were um, energized by what God is doing in Denver, excited about the fact that we're going to be taking a trip to Denver this summer to help out with sports camps, sports clinics, and hope you um, were able to get a vision for what Chris is doing out there, what God is doing through Chris. On July 5th, 2009, a man named Terry Herbert was out walking in a recently plowed farmland in Hammerwich, Staffordshire, England. Now, I don't know that you can come up with a more English-sounding name than Hammerwich, Staffordshire, but that's where he was. Hammerwich, Staffordshire. Anybody ever been to Hammerwich? Me neither, all right? And so, Hammerwich... I can't even say it. Hammerwich, Staffordshire, England. He had a metal detector just out randomly in a recently plowed field. When it suddenly started to go crazy. He reached down and found what appeared to be a piece of gold. And over the next five days, he found 244 gold objects buried in the ground. He thought, I better call somebody about this because it wasn't his land. So he called in the authorities, and over the next few years, they found 3,500 pieces of buried treasure. Over 11 pounds of gold, 3 pounds of silver. It's the largest treasure of Anglo-Saxon gold to date, and it was bought for around $4.1 million. We're fascinated with stories of treasure-seeking, treasure-hunting, treasure-finding. When I was a kid, I grew up on a... uh, The first few years of my life, uh, I grew up on a small street on the outskirts of Dyersburg. Near a place called Rowellen, Tennessee. Now, I don't know if Rowellen's bigger than Hamperwich, but it's small. And we lived in a little subdivision... That had two streets, Rose Drive and Cooley Drive, and all around the subdivision were woods. And for my entire time of growing up on Rose Drive, there were rumors of buried treasure in the woods. And so every summer, a group of friends and I would venture into the woods. It's amazing how adventurous that felt as a young child, right? How dangerous it felt. Because along with the stories of the buried treasure somewhere in the woods were the stories of the animals and beasts that were in the woods. And when you went with your older brother, some of you have older brothers, for some reason the stories of the animals and the beasts got told every time you were walking through a particularly dense part of the woods. But the treasure always drove you. Now, we never find the Rose Drive, Cooley Drive treasure. And my guess is it never existed. 
were fascinated with stories of buried treasure. One of the most successful movie franchises of all times is about a man, an archaeologist, who goes on hunts for buried, lost treasure. Indiana Jones, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark, about the Ark of the Covenant. The Temple of Doom, about ancient treasure. The Last Crusade, about finding the Holy Grail. And the last one nobody talks about because it was terrible. How many of you saw the last one? It was bad, right? Okay. Here's what's interesting to me. Buried treasure isn't something that's a new phenomenon. It's not something that people have just started to think about and ponder about and long for. In fact, it's been going on for centuries. And there's a story about buried treasure at the heart of the teaching of Jesus. As we continue through the life of Jesus, today I want to talk about his teaching. And as we started to think about this series, as we started to think about telling the life of Jesus, we decided that one day, I prayed about, thought through, we discussed it as a staff, one day we needed to talk about the teaching of Jesus. And I began to ask the question, how in the world do you encapsulate, summarize, get together the teaching of Jesus in one sermon? And the quick answer to that is, you don't. At least not in the amount of time we have today, unless you would like to stay here for an extended period of time, like through the afternoon into tomorrow, we're not going to be able to get close to summarizing the teachings of Jesus. And yet, I think that in Matthew 13, in the midst of an extended teaching session, we find a single verse that encapsulates the teaching of Jesus. Now, let me just tell you where we are in the book of Matthew. First of all, this is the third major teaching passage in the book of Matthew. Now, Wednesday nights, we are walking through the book of Matthew verse by verse. We've already hit one of those on Wednesday nights, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5 through 7, that's called the what? Sermon on the Mount, right? Some, some of you are here, but you're not fully awake yet. It's that extra hour, I know. We need to do some jumping jacks or something, somebody. You didn't even respond to that, so maybe we do, all right? Um, so, Sermon on the Mount. Now, if I wanted to do a message about the longest single teaching passage of Jesus, that would be the Sermon on the Mount. If I wanted to do an extended message about the teaching of Jesus and the law, that would be the Sermon on the Mount. But it is a considered by most the greatest sermon in the history of the world. Three chapters beginning to end starts with the Beatitudes, ends with the parable of the two builders. In between is stuff that we quote and live by all the time. And then a few chapters later, Jesus would teach his disciples and he's sending them out into the land. He's sharing what he needs them to know. And then he's going to send them on a mission. And in Matthew 13, we come to the third extended major teaching passage in this book. And it tells us this in chapter 13, starting in verse one. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. 
such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. So here's what's happening in the book of Matthew. We are moving towards the middle, to the, we're cresting the hill on Jesus' ministry. And you can see in almost every one of the Gospels that what happens is Jesus begins to build a following, develop a following, gather a following. He is doing miraculous signs. He's doing amazing teaching. He, people, and because of the teaching of the Word, because of the miracles that are happening, begin to follow Him in droves and droves and droves. And almost every gospel account, there's a moment where Jesus begins, as to use an old country phrase, to thin the herd. He begins to weed out some people. He begins to harden his teachings so that people will suddenly go, ah, I don't know about that. Famously in John chapter 6, he begins to tell them, Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of the kingdom. And it says in there that they said, this is hard teaching, and that many disciples left him that day. And not the twelve, but the crowds. <clears throat> and in Matthew chapter 13, one of the things that I believe is happening here, one of the things that we see happening here, is that Jesus, for twelve chapters, has been building a following. We get in Matthew 1 and 2, the birth of Jesus, but once the ministry starts, once the temptation and the baptism and all of that begins to happen, the crowds begin to form around Jesus. And they're there because of his teaching and of his miracles. And in Matthew 13, I believe Jesus is kind of at the point where he says, they're still not getting it. Jesus understands why they're not getting it. It's hard. It's deep. But the disciples, the apostles, those that are walking with Jesus, the crowds that are gathering, Jesus senses that they're still not getting it. And so in Matthew chapter 13, he's going to tell an extended set of parables that talks about the kingdom of God. In fact, that's what it says, right? And then he told them many things in parables. Now, if you're going to talk about the teaching of Jesus, if you're going to have a discussion about the teaching of Jesus, then you have to understand what parables are. Because he taught in parables all the time. Parables are the method through which Jesus most normally taught. Illustrations, understandings. And so we have to ask some questions about this. Things like, what is a parable? That'd be kind of nice to know, right? He's talking to them in parables. And just simply, the parable is a practical story that illustrates a spiritual truth. A practical story that illustrates spiritual truth. It's more than just a simple illustration. It's more than just a story. It's a story, a practical story, that illustrates some spiritual truth that needs to be understood. Now, there are all kinds of parables in the, in the Bible, right? Jesus' teachings. I'm going to get you to wake up for a minute and tell me, what are some of the parables? What are some of the most well-known or less well-known? What are some of the parables in Scripture? What's that? Good Samaritan. The sower, right? Prodigal son. Lost sheep. Missing coin. Those are all Luke 15. Luke is famous for his parables, but Matthew tells a lot of them as well. 
The, the word actually means to walk alongside, to come along with, to help you to understand spiritual truth. So the question is, why did Jesus use parables all the time? Well, here's the thing. We won't read this whole passage in Matthew 13. In fact, we're going to focus only on three verses in the middle of it. But if you look throughout Matthew 13, one of the things that happens is they ask him, why do you talk in parables, Jesus? And Jesus gives them two reasons. One is because he's revealing truth to those who would search to believe. It's like a treasure hunt. He gives the story that we may seek out the truth that's embedded there. It also makes it go down a little easier. Every generation thinks the generation after them had it easier than they did. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? My kids do not understand what it's like to take medicine without flavoring. You know, you can choose your flavor of medicine now. Grape, bubblegum, berry. You know what flavors we had when I was growing up? Gag and gross. That's what it was. Right? And it was told just close your mouth and swallow. Right? I believe it was that great theologian, sage, Mary Poppins, who said that a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Right? Jesus, long before Mary Poppins was on the scene, by the way, was giving people spiritual truth through a little bit of flavoring. Made it easier to ingest, although it's just like that medicine that once it got into the body, it does more work than you could ever imagine. That's true of Jesus' teachings here. It's like a treasure hunt. We look at it. We, we hear it. And we're like, oh, that makes so much sense. That's good. And then later while we're eating lunch and we're not thinking about the parable, it hits us again like, wow. Do you know what he meant there? There's stories that are relevant for those that are seeking Jesus since they've been given until current present day. Think about the Good Samaritan, right? We've come to talk about the need to be a good Samaritan. I mean, it's a phrase used in our vernacular every day. And yet, if we really think about the story of the good Samaritan, it is a story of crossing racial, religious, ethnic lines to help someone out. One of my favorite retellings of the good Samaritan is in the Cotton Patch Gospel. Set in Atlanta during the civil rights movement. And in that story, the Good Samaritan is an African-American man. And the one who is laying on the side of the road is a white, wealthy man. And when you read the story in that context, exactly the same kind of story, it reveals at the heart of who we are that we are still people trapped in many ways by a discrimination that flows from a superiority of thinking in our own minds. And suddenly that becomes much more uncomfortable than there was a man walking on the road. And a Samaritan came and helped. Because we have no identification with Samaritans. 
Jesus told it to us in parables to the people there in order that they could get the truth in a palatable way. But he also says this, and this is interesting in that passage. You can go back and look at this later. That part of the reason he spoke in parables is because he's also concealing truth from those who would not believe. He said that no matter how many miracles he did, no matter what he did, there were going to be people that did not believe. And in doing so, it's almost like there's a secret group that can hear and understand the teachings of Jesus, those that are following him, that are looking after him. And what seems like wisdom to those is foolishness to the world. And he had already told them about this when they asked him the question because he just got finished telling them the parable of the sower. You know that parable, right? There's a man that goes out sowing seed. He sows seed all over the soil and some is good soil and some is hard soil and some is uh, weedy soil and some is superficial soil. And he's telling them in that parable that the sower is him, the son of man. The seed is the gospel, the message that he has brought and that the problem with it not growing is not the sower. It's not the seed. It's the soil in which it's been cast, which is us. And he's speaking in this parable and reminding them that there are people with hard hearts that will not listen. People with superficial hearts that will allow it to get there a little bit, but it's not going to change them. People with a divided heart that are seeking after other things so much that they can't truly go after the Lord. And then there are those that receive the word. And it grows. And so in just a moment, I'm going to tell you a parable. One of Jesus' parables. One of the things that I want you to truly understand, try to come to grips with is, is my heart ready to hear? I think so many times we come in on Sunday morning and we are hard or distracted hearts. The week has been tough. The week has been hard. The week has made us to where we just want to get through another day. We just want to check this off our list. We lost an hour of sleep last night and they were mad about it. Illness has developed in our family. We hadn't felt well this week. The bank account looks terrible this week. An old friend betrayed us this week. Our marital relationship has been bumpy At best this week. Our kids didn't call this week. Or they did, but were too distracted to really have a conversation and you needed a conversation. We come into this place distracted. Our hearts that are hard. There can be no other explanation for the reality that you and I walk into a room like this. For most of us, 40 to 50 times a year. And hear the word of God proclaimed. And yet, when you look at the statistics and you look at our own lives, very little life change actually happens from January to December. Some of you can do the math pretty quickly. If you average 40 Sundays a year, which for some of you in this room would be the worst of your life to only come 40 Sundays a year. But can you think about the number of accumulated messages you have heard in your lifetime? Even if you heard a hundred a year, which for some of you come in three times a week, that would have been low growing up. 
For our new generation here in 30 a year is good. But for many of you grew up here in 100 a year at least. And so if you're 100 a year for 70 years, that's 7,000 messages. Not all good, but definitely not all bad. And if they've been tied to the gospel of Jesus, we ought to see life change regularly happening. Jesus says the reason he spoke in parables is one, those that want the truth, that want to seek the truth, can find it. But he also spoke in parables because it made it something that we had to seek. And so when we hear a parable, with our hearts ready to listen, our hearts open to listening. We must first listen from the perspective of the ones listening in those days. It's not easy to get our mindset back into the day that Jesus taught, but we must try. We must look for the main point of the message and then let the truth change us. And in the middle of Matthew chapter 13 is a couple of parables, a duo of parables, a couplet of parables that I think captures the very heart of Jesus' teaching. And I want us today to ask the question, are we willing and ready to listen? And are we willing and ready to change? Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, you you know this story and you can read ahead, but I want you to stop for a minute and ask the question, what are we after here? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is being talked about in the kingdom of heaven? Now, some people hear that phrase and they think immediately of the heavenly realm, the stars, the skies, wherever heaven is. But that is not what is intended in this passage. Now, in some ways, it's a shadow of that. But it's talking about something here. Something on this earth. And it says the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses that phrase 32 times. Now, does anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of Matthew? 28, right? So if I'm just doing quick math here, 32 is more than 28. Can we get an agreement on that? Which means more than once per chapter, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. In other words, that's probably a pretty important concept to Matthew. Amen. Now, we don't have time again to go into the whole kingdom of heaven understanding because it inspires the entire Bible. It goes literally from Genesis and creation to the end of time and revelation. But I want you to understand that it's most basic understanding. The kingdom of heaven is the redemptive reign of God in Jesus. It talks about the authority and the sovereignty of God as king. Now, in one sense, and in the true sense, this is absolutely true, God is completely sovereign over all. Amen? Amen. He is in control. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is completely in control. But the kingdom of God is not necessarily talking about that aspect of God's character. What the kingdom of heaven is talking about is how God is asserting His authority and redemption of sinners through Jesus. 
So here's the picture of the kingdom of heaven. In creation, God creates Adam and Eve in the garden. They're in the garden. Everything is perfect. Then Adam and Eve do what? They sin. They eat of a tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And as they eat of the tree which they were not supposed to eat of, sin begins to infiltrate the world and sin puts itself, bonds itself to our nature. And so that every single human being that has been born since Adam and Eve has given themselves to betraying God, to being an enemy of God, to going against God. We call it our sin nature and it is a part of our lineage, but it is also a part of our action because each one of us has chosen to go our own way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so immediately after Adam and Eve sin, God brings punishment on them, exiles them from the garden, punishes the serpent, punishes the man, punishes the woman, but also gives a prediction of Jesus coming in that he would crush the head of the serpent. Now, in theological terms, y'all like big theological terms every now and then, right? So you say, no, I don't ever like it, but here it is, all right? In theological terms, that is called the Proto-Evangelion. You got that? Y'all want to share that tomorrow? On the, what did y'all talk about at church? The Proto-Evangelion is what we talked about. And that simply means, right in the middle you can hear Evangel. It means the first gospel. And it was spoken in the first three chapters of Genesis. And the rest of the book is about God executing His plan to redeem sinners and set things right. To spread the kingdom of God into this earth. We learned last week from Chris that the primary tool Jesus used in that was found in Luke 19. That he came to seek and to save sinners. Those that were lost. Those that are disconnected from God. Kingdom of God is talked about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Matthew six thirty three. seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so this is an important concept. And Jesus here in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, is going to tell them what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, he does that in extended ways. He's already talked about it a little bit. He's given them picture after picture. And there's one right here in the middle. He wants them to understand whatever this kingdom of heaven is, whatever it is like, he wants them to grasp it, to know it. And he tells it through a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. It's like treasure. Buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Now we open this whole sermon with the story of a guy who found a treasure through a metal detector. Can, can I give you a little hint here? They didn't have metal detectors in Jesus' day. Right? So how did you find a treasure in Jesus' day? Well, a couple of ways. Either A, you just tripped over it. You're walking in a field and you trip. Or secondly, and more likely, the image here that he wants the people to think of is somebody that's working the field in a walk-behind plow. 
And we're to feel the emotions of this man as he's walking the field in a walk behind plow and he hits something. And it stops him in his tracks. And he's frustrated and he's mad, like not again. And he walks around to the front and he pulls the plow back a little bit. He begins to uncover, expecting it to be a rock that he's going to have to pick up, carry over to the side of the field and place down because he can't get through that particular area. And when he uncovers it, instead of a rock, he finds a box. And as he wipes off the dirt of the box and opens it, It reveals a treasure inside. He shuts it quickly and thinks to himself, did anybody see that? Right? Puts it back where it was. Covers it back with the dirt that's around and runs back to town. Now, how do I know he runs? Well, it doesn't say he runs, but it says he in his joy goes. Now, I've never seen anybody enjoy meander. I've never seen anybody enjoy saunter. People enjoy run. Let's just imagine for a moment. A scene that could happen about two o'clock this afternoon. When a team that hasn't won an SEC championship tournament since 1979. Vanquishes their biggest rival for the third time this season. The clock hits zero. For the first time since the 1940s. This particular team will have won not only the conference regular season championship. But also the tournament championship. Do you think any of those players will casually walk to center court? I didn't say it is going to happen. Some of you Kentucky fans are already mad about it. I didn't say it was going to happen. I'm just saying it could. Now, all the statistics say it probably won't, which will make it sweeter if it does. But do you think Admiral Schofield and Grant Williams and Jordan Bone are going to... Huh, that's all right. What's going to happen if they win that thing? They're going to run, tackle each other, jump for joy. As I may in my living room. Right? Because when you have joy, you don't saunter or meander or walk. And imagine this guy who is out on a normal, mundane, everyday day. Sameness of labor, monotony of a job, sun beating down, tired from his work, and he hits a treasure and he opens it up and he thinks to himself, I'm rich. I found it. And it says that he goes in joy and sells everything. It must have been a big treasure because people don't sell everything in joy. Unless it's big. Amen. I mean, this isn't a yard sale getting rid of the junk. It says he sells what? Everything. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think perhaps maybe in the teaching of Jesus that there is a parallel here with another young man that was told to go and sell everything? And he did what? 
He refused. And he went away sad. Do you see the contrast in the two men? One refuses, goes away sad because his possessions held him too much. The other, in joy, runs to town and gets rid of everything he's got. Buries it. Liquidates everything. And goes and buys, not the box, he buys what? The field. He said, it's so important, I don't want any mistake about what's mine. Can I tell you a fascinating fact about the treasure I told you about at the beginning of the sermon? Guess what? <laughs> there was a dispute between the guy that found it and the guy that owned the land. That's shocking, isn't it? About how much money should go to each. And it said in the news report, there had been a falling out between the two men. Well, this guy in the parable didn't want anybody to have a dispute about whose field it was. And so he goes and he buys the field. It was more important than anything else in his life. What in your life is worth more than anything else? What is the driving influence in your life? Matthew 6.21 says that where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And so I have a simple question for you today, and then we're going to give some examples of what it could be, and then we're going to wrap this whole thing up. What is your treasure? What is it in life that dictates everything else you do? I have a treasure box here on the platform, and it's just filled inside with some things that, that could be Something that you treasure, something that drives your life, something that's important to you. For instance, I've already talked about this a little bit, but we live in a culture that sports is a big deal. Huge deal. Watching it, playing it, enjoying it, having fun with it, entertaining yourself with it, following teams. Kids playing, thinking they're going to be the next LeBron or the next Peyton Manning. Spending hours and hours a year honing a craft when about 0.1% of them will ever make it where they get paid to play. And in the end, it's meaningless. I joked about Tennessee and Kentucky's basketball game today. And listen, I'm going to watch it. I love following Tennessee sports. Y'all know that, right? But the moment it becomes a driving influence in my life is the moment it is too important to me. So maybe ball is a treasure of your life. Now, some of you say, I could care less about that. Well, just wait. There might be something in here for you. What about this? Think I'm not into movies, treasure. It's not really for movies. I was thinking about like accomplishment in life, career goals, position, importance, how people think of you. This little statue here is not an official Oscar. I know that's shocking to you all, right? 
amazing that this isn't the real thing. This is a, uh, a, a little one that says Hollywood's best dad. And I don't even know, this isn't mine. I don't know who this is, all right? People spend their lives trying to attain certain levels of fame or notoriety, certain levels of accomplishment in their careers. Some people live their lives even in retirement based on who they were in their jobs. For young people, maybe it's academics or maybe it's a parent, it's academics. And you sacrifice what your kids get in biblical instruction because you're more worried about an A or a B. About a scholarship or a college. About a good education. Maybe that's your treasure. What about this one? That's a credit card. I thought that'd be safer than bringing a wad of $100 bills up here. All right. Can I get an amen in the house? By second service, there might be some new people in the church, all right? Aren't you glad we've overcome our desire for material things and money? Talk about an age-old dilemma. Jesus is the one that said, you can't serve two masters. You must serve either God or money. Getting it, keeping it, holding on to it can become the treasure of our lives. What about this thing? I know this is important to some of you because this is the first service we've gone through in a while without somebody's going off. We've somehow made it, right? Now, for some of you say, well, listen, that's not my generation's issue. Do you know that some studies show that the fasting grows, fastest growing segment of people addicted to their technology and cell phones is senior adults? Now, you know Why? Because everybody else is already addicted. They're the only ones that got to go left. All right? Let me give you a statistic about these. And so if it's not your issue, maybe you can pray for the next generation. On average, the average American, that's all age groups, checks their phone now 81,500 times a year. That's once every four minutes. Which means if you're average... You've been tempted in this message that I've been going for like, I think, four minutes, right? It's been longer than four minutes, all right? So you're like, man, this time is slow, all right? In an average sermon of mine, you'll be tempted to check this ten times. Some of you say some sermons, it's like 40, all right? What's your treasure? What about this? What about church? Sometimes people get so wrapped up in their religion, their tradition, in what their church has been or is to them, or they've been to it, that it becomes their treasure. How many years they've taught, how many times they've served, how many ways they've served, how many committees they've been on, where they are now, what people see them as, what position they've held. You want to know whether church is something that may be a treasure to you more than Jesus. Just have somebody change something in the church that's still honoring to Jesus, but is different than you like. What about this one? This, this is my family. But what about yours? Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You're about to go to meddling here. Is your family more important to you than Jesus? Now, in the South, that's almost heresy to talk about. I love my family. I love my family. My, my girls are at this place right now with the who do you love more kind of stuff. They ask me, Dad, do you love us more than the boys? Or do you love me more than her? 
Do you love mommy more than us? I love my family. But you remember what Jesus said about family, don't you? To he who does not hate his mother, father, sister, brother, cannot follow me. Now, he doesn't actually mean we hate them. He means that in comparison to how we feel about him, we do. What's your treasure? There's one more little part of this story that we haven't read yet. And it's Matthew 13, 45 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. There's a difference between this particular parable and the one before. Because the one before was a man walking in the field, plowing a field, when suddenly he trips over it or he hits it with a plow. This is someone actively searching for the meaning of life, searching for pearls. Now you say, how are pearls the meaning of life? We'll get to that in a minute. When he found one priceless pearl. One priceless pearl. He went and... Sold everything he had and bought it. Pearls. Now, I don't think these would look good on me. But pearls have been, for generations, something that people sought after. And in a day and time of Jesus' life, when you didn't just find pearls in a local supermarket. You don't find them in local supermarkets today either, but... You can find them if you want them. There, they were rare indeed. He says the kingdom of heaven is like finding that one priceless pearl, selling everything you have and buying it. You want to know what Jesus' teaching is summed up as, is encapsulated as, is found as? It's simply this. That the kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for. It is to be the driving influence of our lives. Philippians 3.8 says, More than that, this is Paul talking. I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so the application for today is simply this. We joyfully let go of all things in order to passionately take hold of one thing. And that is Jesus. The teaching of Jesus can be summarized in this way. He was coming to say, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now and the kingdom is coming. And I am ushering it in and I will die for your sins, raise again from the dead and believe in me. And I will give you life eternal. And the true gospel is that he loved us enough that he sold everything to purchase our salvation. And the question is, what will we do in return? We give it all up for him. And here's the reason. Because he is worthy. Let's pray together.